right up here to the front and we're going to pray for the kids together. Frank and Marcel have asked that we would dedicate Kaylee and Joshua to the Lord today. And I'm so thrilled to do that. And I know this is a very, very special time. Now, uh, just for clarity's sake, all of us, under, just so everyone understands, this is not something we're doing or has to be done in order for a person to be saved. Uh, the, the salvation is an act of faith on the part of someone who makes a decision to live for God. But this is a dedication. We're going to say a dedication prayer for these little ones that God would protect them and give them health and strength, keep them safe from all harm. We're also going to make a prayer of commitment both for this family and for the larger church family uh, that we will do our very, very best to give these two young people a chance and an opportunity to be exposed to the truth of God's word and to commit their lives to do what God's called them to do. Everyone said amen. And uh, Frank and Marcel, there was something that I was thinking about this week, and uh, I just wanted to share real briefly with you before we say this special prayer of dedication. And uh, the, uh, the Bible says in the book of Psalms, it says, Children are a heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. And then it compares it to arrows. It says, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. And uh, the Bible here is essentially indicating that your children are a valuable asset. It says just like a warrior that has a quiver full of arrows, he has what he needs to fight the battle. And the Bible is indicating that your children are something that God has given you. Something that God has blessed you with, a heritage from the Lord. And we have a lot of blessings that we receive from God. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for my job. I see that as a blessing from God. I'm thankful for any talents that I have, my health, uh, my ability to earn money. All of these things are resources and blessings that I have. But I believe, I feel like the Lord spoke to me today, this week, that the most special thing that God has given me is my children. 
And this is something that God can use to bless. And so a lot of times as people, we spend a lot of time and attention and priority and focus on the other things. You know, we focus a lot on our career, focus a lot maybe on education, focus a lot on getting possessions, whether it's a home or a new car or whatever. And uh, we invest in that. We put ourselves into that. But I feel like God wants us to remember today, everybody listening, God wants us to remember today that if we invest in all those things and we don't invest in our children, when I say invest, I'm not talking about buying them a bunch of stuff, but I'm talking about taking your mental energy, your time and your focus to say, I want to sow something into my children that's going to reap benefits someday. I can't spend 45 hours a week sowing into my career and spend so many hours a week sowing into all these other things that are important to me and not recognize my children as something special that need my attention, that need me to be, uh, uh, the word that I'm looking for is intentional, be intentional with how I'm raising them and investing in them. You know, the Bible talks about the, the uh, parable of the unprofitable servant where Jesus told a story about he gave talents to this person, talents to this person, and talents to this person. And uh, the one person invested those talents and had a return. The other person invested his talents had a return. The third person did nothing to invest those talents, buried the talents, and when the master came back, the story says that he was angry with the unprofitable servant. He said, I gave you something, and I wanted you to invest in that to multiply your purpose, to multiply your effectiveness by investing this thing that I gave you. And I believe with all my heart that the Lord has spoken to me this week, and I want to remind Life Church family that your most valuable asset that you have is your children. Don't be an unprofitable servant with your children. Amen? But have a plan. Have an, have an agenda. Be intentional. Say, I want my kids to be this, 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 this. And I want to invest in them. The most important thing that you can invest in your children is about spiritual things. About the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Do I have a witness in the house? That's that's the most critical thing. I want my children to know how to trust in God. I want my children to know that when they're facing something that they don't understand, the first place to go is to God. And that's not going to happen just by accident. That happens by investing that in them. And then uh, someday when you're old and gray and have trouble getting around and uh, all of those things that happen when we get old, you'll have children that are taking the message, taking the truth, taking your values on in this world. So thank God for our children. Let's thank God for our children right now. Amen. Praise the Lord. Sister Brown, can you come help me? I want If you two would stand together, we're going to have special prayer uh, for these children and pray a prayer of dedication, dedicating them to the Lord and, and asking for God's protection upon them right now. Amen. This is Kaylee right here. Kaylee, how old are you? <laughs> Four years old. All right. She feels safe in Daddy's arms. Amen. And Joshua is precious. Joshua is... 18 months. Praise the Lord. I want us to pray, first of all, a prayer of God's blessing and protection on these children. 
Anybody believe prayer works? Otherwise, why waste our time doing it? It works. It makes a difference. Amen. So why don't you just stretch your hands forward and we're going to pray for uh, these children and ask God to protect and bless them. God, I pray right now, Lord Jesus, for Kaylee, first of all. I pray for your hand of protection upon her. And we know, Lord Jesus, that her mother and father are doing everything in their power to make sure, Jesus, that she's free from harm. But I pray, Lord God, that you would be partner in this as well. And when they're not there to protect, Jesus, that your hand would protect them from all harm, Lord Jesus. Protect them, Lord Jesus, I pray, as their children, as they grow into their teenage years. Protect their minds and their hearts, Lord God, as well as their bodies physically. I pray, Lord Jesus, your protection on Joshua as well, Lord God. I ask, Jesus, that you would be there for him, Lord, with your guardian angels, Jesus, to protect and keep your hand upon him in the name of the Lord Jesus. And God, I pray, Lord Jesus, a blessing upon them, that you would bless them, Jesus, and prosper them, Lord God, that you would bless them, Jesus, to help them do well, Lord God, in school, help them interact well, Lord Jesus, with their peers, Lord. We pray this blessing by faith upon them, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord God. Someday, Jesus... You have special things in store for them. And we pray a spiritual blessing upon them. I want to see, Jesus, these two young people give their hearts to you, Lord God, and be filled with your spirit, Jesus, and baptized, Lord God, in water in your name, Lord, when the time comes and they make that decision. We thank you for this, Lord God, and we pray your blessing upon them in Jesus' name. And now we pray, Lord God, let's pray for this pair, these parents right now. Jesus, we pray, Lord God, lay hands on Frank, Jesus, and ask you. God, that you would help him, Lord Jesus, to be the kind of father that he desires to be deep in his heart, Lord God, to be an example, Lord Jesus, to be, Lord God, that source of protection, God, and also provider. I pray in the name of the Lord that he would be a provider, not only, Lord Jesus, in the physical things, but give him, Lord God, the courage to be a provider, Lord Jesus, emotionally for his family, Lord God, and spiritually for his family as well. And I pray, Lord God, for my soul, Lord that you would bless her, Lord God, and anoint her in the name of Jesus to be, Lord God, a leader, Jesus, in spiritual things, Lord God, and be that most powerful and excellent mother that she can be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And Lord God, now we dedicate these children to your service, Lord Jesus. We dedicate Joshua, dear God, and we put him in your hands and say, God, let your will be done in this life, Lord Jesus. And we dedicate Kaylee as Lord, as well, Lord Jesus. And we put her in your hands. And our request, Lord Jesus, is that you would have your way in her life. In the name of Jesus, we thank you that you have heard our prayers. And we thank you, Lord God, for your blessing and protection on this family as they go forward. In the name of Jesus. And everybody in the church affirmed by saying amen and amen. Hallelujah. Let's clap our hands and thank God for this right now. Praise Him. from my home church where I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I feel so honored to have them here. Can you welcome them today? Speaking of, this, we were talking in this baby dedication of raising your children in the house of the Lord, 
Sister Brenda has known me since my bratty days. <laughs> I know, I know. Sometimes can't help it. But anyway, this woman has been faithful, 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 faithful as the sun just about. And um, I just I love both of them so much. This family, both of her children are living for the Lord today. Her son's a youth pastor in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Sister Shan is mightily used of God. She's an awesome singer and worship leader. So I just want to thank them for being here today. I'm very honored to have them. People I respect very highly with us today. It's not often I get visitors from Indiana. (laughs) I also wanted to say one more thing. Um, Thank you so much to all of you who sent me text and phone calls saying that you're praying for my family this week. You know how much that means to me to know that I had a backing of prayer. And um, God, God was so merciful to my family and we have got a praise report and I'm so thankful for all of the prayers. Amen. It was looking pretty uh, bad about 10 days ago. We we didn't know what was going to happen, but uh, when the doctors got in and started doing surgery, they found out it was not cancer. And so we are so thankful for God's mercy. Can you stand for a minute? Let's just rejoice in the Lord one more time before we go into the word of the Lord.
Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. You've been set free. Hallelujah. Come on, is there anybody that's been set free from alcoholism? Anybody been set free from drugs or drug addiction? Amen. Anybody been set free from a lifestyle of sin that just was destroying you? Somebody say, He set me free. Yes, He set me free. He broke the bonds of prison for me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Thank you, Jesus. You're the one that's worthy. You're the only one I can give praise to today. Because He set me free. Yes, He set me free. You may never have been trapped in a, a sexual addiction, but are you still glad that you're not who you used to be? 
because you may not have been uh, bound by substances, but some of you were bound by idolatry, worship of self. Some of you were bound up, worried about what other people thought about you. Some people were in a cage of low self-esteem because of what had happened to you and what you've been through in your life. But I can rejoice today because he set me free. Hallelujah. He broke the bonds of prison. I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ, and I thank him for that. Hallelujah. The Lord is worthy. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn quickly to the book of Genesis, chapter number 2. I want to say we welcome all of our guests that are with us today, and we're praying for those that are normally here but sick in body today that God would touch and heal them. I don't know if I mentioned to you or not, but I'm so glad that my wife is back. Amen. What a day of great rejoicing. And my little baby girl, Eden. She's such a sweetheart, and I missed her. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9 says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you have even the slightest amount of knowledge of the Word of God, you know that that tree of knowledge of good and evil created some serious problems. Right? But as I read this verse, the grammar would show me that the Lord caused this tree, the the, the grammatical construct would let me know that the Lord caused this tree to grow in the midst of the garden. It seems a little bit counterintuitive to think that a holy and a pure God and a loving God would allow and cause to grow something that had potential to cause harm to His crowning creation, his children, his beloved human beings. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God gave this restriction and commandment. In fact, it was the only limitation or commandment on humanity, Adam and then his created wife, Eve, the only restriction that they had. I don't know about you, but in my life, I've had some questions about this story, things that didn't really make sense to me. And uh, I want to talk about some of those questions today because they... Someone may look at the story and say, well, what does it really matter? I mean, what happened in the Garden of Eden thousands of years ago? But they are fundamental questions that uh, relate to what you're going through in your life right now. Questions about why God does what He does, why God allows what He allows, and why certain things happen that don't seem to make sense from our perspective. But I believe we serve a God who does all things well, who's good all the time, who works all things together for our good. So I want to talk a little bit about the origin of sin and the blessing of redemption because you can't understand the one without appreciating the other. And I want God to share with us that today. 
Not just so we'll have greater biblical knowledge, but so some of us can rejoice in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our difficulty, and understand that God has a plan and God's doing something. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we thank you today for your mercy and kindness. And we thank you, Lord God, that when we gather together, we can be strengthened and enriched. God, I pray, Lord, let your word, Jesus, penetrate deep into our hearts, Lord, beyond certain people's facades that have been structured because of disappointments and lack of understanding. And I pray let your mercy and grace and love flow through the puncture hole, Lord God, to bring mercy and newness of life and a transformation of heart and mind. I pray this in the precious name that's above every name, in the name of Jesus. Just for one second, would you lift up your hands and help me lift up the name of Jesus? He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. He was talking about the cross, but I believe today we can lift him up in this house. Amen. And let his word do its work and let his will be accomplished in this place. That's it. In Jesus' name, God, we praise you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, that's it. Thank you, Jesus. You're precious. You're powerful. I love you, Jesus. I love you. 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 Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Amen. 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 God bless you. Amen. You may be seated. I want to say, uh, Robbie, our friends, Robbie, we're praying for you. He lost his best friend, been his best friend for 20-something years, and uh, actually his wife. And uh, he, he lost her this week, and we're praying for you, and pray God would strengthen you. Amen. You know, there are a lot of questions that I have for God, uh, a lot of nagging questions in my fertile, active mind that uh, perhaps at times I keep sequestered in the back of my mind, and I don't really voice them that much. Now, in, in the Word of God, in the Bible, most of life's questions are answered. In fact, all of life's most important questions are answered in the Word of God. Do you believe that that's true? That the Bible that you have, that, that ancient book written many, many years ago, contains all of the most important answers to the questions that you have in your life. Now, I do know that there are little questions that we may have or curiosities that the Bible does not address, things that we wonder about. Uh, for example, who were these sons of God that are mentioned in the book of Genesis? And how come dinosaurs aren't mentioned in the Bible? Anybody ever wondered about that before? Those little questions. But uh, fundamentally, the question that probably bothers the most people is if God is loving, and He is, and if God is sovereign and all-powerful, and He is, why would He allow certain things to happen? And why do certain things take place under the authority and auspices of a loving God? When we say that God is sovereign, that means that He's all-powerful. Everything's under His control. Nothing can transpire that He doesn't possess the power to stop, change, or make happen differently. And when we look at the pain and suffering and difficulty and hurt and... Uh, Wars and rumors of wars and famines and sicknesses and dictators and uh, holocausts and things like that in our world. It no doubt 
produces challenging questions that sometimes we would rather tuck away than deal with and talk about. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, a passage that I read when I was a, or, or memorized when I was a Bible quizzer, says, Oh, the depth of the riches, everyone say riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. God, Your, your uh, judgments or why You do what You do are unsearchable. That means it's past my ability to really understand and discover. In verse 34, who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who can boast and say, I know what God's doing and why He is doing it? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody knows the mind of the Lord and no one hath been His counselor. So God doesn't come to us with our finite minds and our reasoning as we observe situations and say, what should I do? We're not God's counselor. He is sovereign. His judgments and His ways are past our finding out, but there is riches there. Now, I mentioned little questions that we may have. Uh, uh, anybody ever wondered, what, what, what's the deal with all these dinosaur, dinosaur bones that they're finding? And, and I don't read about dinosaurs in the Bible. We're not going to get all the answers to all these questions. Some people say, well, in, in the Old Testament where it mentions the Leviathan or the dragon, perhaps that's a reference to dinosaurs. There are many theologians that uh, uh, believe in something called the gap theory that would explain a lot of uh, extinct animals like the dinosaurs. And very simply what it means is they teach or believe that there could be an indeterminate gap of time, thousands, maybe millions of years, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. What does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does verse 2 say? And the earth was, or it could be translated, became without form and void. And so the gap theory is that there was, God created everything in the beginning, and there could have been a time where there were variety of different animals, but then over the process of time, the earth came without form and void, maybe an ice age or a flood, something like that. And then in Genesis chapter 3, it actually describes the rebirth of the earth. Now, I'm not telling you whether I ascribe to that or not, but, you know, there's answers to these little questions, potential ways to answer them, but we can't know unless the Bible addresses them directly. But the question I want to talk about today is one that has bothered me, and it goes deep into the nature and the operation of God, why God does things and allows things to happen. And uh, to, to get to the very first time that this question, in my opinion, appears in Scripture, and uh, not necessarily addressed, but in all of our minds, is why did God plant this dangerous tree in His perfect garden, in this place of paradise, and... On top of that, why did God allow there to be a serpent, which was Satan manifested in creature flesh, in this garden to operate in temptation against the helpless innocents, which were God's creation? Anybody ever thought that? Am I the only one that's ever thought that or had that question? Why? Why, God? Why? I mean, you didn't have to plant that tree there. Just don't put the tree there. And then you don't have to put any restriction on it. It's like 
mom, if you don't want your kids to disobey, don't bake cookies. And if you bake cookies, don't put the cookie jar right there at their level where they can reach out and say, now don't touch them. So what, what's the deal, God? Man was innocent and, and living in this paradise and enjoying this relationship with God. And it, and it begs the question of, did God set man up for failure? Uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 gives us a little clue that God already knew what we understand in his foreknowledge. He knows everything. But God knew that man was going to make a big blunder, a huge mistake with magnanimously large implications. Revelation 13.8 says, Whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ. The Bible says here the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That means before God did anything, before God breathed breath into the first man, there was a Lamb that was slain in the plan of God. Everybody with me still? John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. Or in the Greek that word is Logos. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. This Word. Now, there are certain Bible scholars that have a misunderstanding of Scripture and they indicate that this Word is another person that was in the garden together with God at the beginning. And these two guys were together. One now is referred to as the Father. The other is referred to as the Son. But we, when you can't deduce that from this passage. You can't deduce this from correct biblical scholarship. Because the word logos doesn't mean person. The word logos means a thought or an idea or an expression. The Bible says in the beginning, at the very beginning, was the Word. In other words, God had a plan from the very beginning. Amen. So I, I, I want to, let me just spill the beans for you. Redemption was not plan B. Redemption was plan A. <laughs> and so you've got to get this because sometimes... We think our plan A is God's plan A. And we're reluctant to go with plan B, never realizing that that was God's plan A all the time. Mm -hmm. And so there, uh, at, the, at the very beginning, at the origin of all things, God's had a plan. And His plan included redemption. Because verse 14 of John chapter 1 says, And the Word was made flesh. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That means that when, when the fullness of time was come, that God's plan became visible in the form of a man who was more than a man, but it was God manifest in the flesh, redeeming mankind back to Himself. Know ye not that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself? No, the Son was not in Christ, God was in Christ. God in Christ is referred to as the Son. It's not the Son in flesh. It's God in flesh. And God in flesh is referred to as the Son of God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. But the point I want you to get is this plan was not something He hatched up at the last minute to say, man, I've got to fix this problem that's been made. The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. And God's plan goes back before we were even born. And so that only deepens, if you would, that question as to why did God set man up for failure in the garden. God gave him a commandment. That's all they needed. All they needed to do was obey.
But God knew that they were going to stumble and they were going to fall. So is the question, that's a question we have. Was, was Adam set up? Our father, was he set up? And if so, what does that tell us about God? Is there something wrong with his way of thinking that doesn't jive with the way that uh, we would discern things? Because this was a major failure. This wasn't just one man slipping up. But Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 gives us a little bit of the implication of this failure. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who's that one man? Adam. By one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Anybody ever been to a funeral before? That funeral is a product of Adam's failure. Death by sin. And so death or separation, spiritual separation, also the separation of the body from the spirit, which is the second death, physical death, the first death being separation from God's presence. Death passed upon all men because all have sinned. So Adam got us in a mess, a big mess. Everybody with me right now? Adam's failure created problems for every human that would ever be born. They were born in sin. And as the writer said, shapen in iniquity. So here's the question. God, why did you put the tree in the garden? I want to deal with this in a couple ways here to help us understand a little bit. Why, why did you put a tree in the garden? Now, now, the Bible says that God created man in his own image. In his own likeness. That's what made mankind different than the animals. The animals weren't created in the image of God. Human beings were created in the image of God. That's, that's where the, the creation account and the truth of God's word runs so contradictory to the theory of evolution which says there's nothing distinctive or exclusive or unique about human beings. They're just a little bit smarter than monkeys. They can do a few more things. But we understand from the Word of God that God breathed into dust and created man and made man in His own image. And that doesn't mean just, well, our face looked like God's face because we know God doesn't have a face. God's an invisible spirit. You say, but the Bible talks about the eye of the Lord. That's an anthropomorphism, which means given human characteristics to God to help us understand His ability to see all things. What about the finger of God? Is there a massive finger up in heaven? No. God did not have a body until a little baby was born and laid in a manger. Then he had a physical body. So what is, it the, what is this image of God? Well, in part, it was foresight of God's body created and revealed through Jesus Christ. But more significantly, it has to do with our intellect, our creativity, our Human nature, our ability to make choices, our ability to go wherever we want to and uh, decide to do or not to do. And, and a key thing is free will. Everybody say free will. Free will. No, I didn't say free willy. I said free, free will. Your free will is what? Is your ability. God gives you the chance to choose. Why? Because He created us in His image. We're different than the angels. As I understand the Bible's uh, description of angels, these are not beings who have options and choices as to whether they will be worshipers of God. We know that Lucifer was a unique being. He exalted himself as God. But from my understanding of the host of heaven, they are, in a sense, 
designed almost like automatrons that worship God all the time and get their fulfillment from that. Whereas human beings can choose to either pursue after spiritual things and seek to worship and serve God, or we can pursue our own desires, our own things. We get to choose. So here's the point. If there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil growing in the garden and beginning to produce fruit, and if God puts no restriction on mankind and lets him just lollygag around in this garden, then he does not have the power of choice. I don't know if you can get that or not. But until you have an ability to make a decision, a moral choice, right or wrong, yes or no, I'm going to do it or I'm not going to do it, you don't have the freedom of choice. You're just another like a created being in heaven, the angels. But when God put the tree in the garden, He equipped or gave man something that the angels don't have, and that is the option to choose to either obey and serve and live for God or ignore His commandments and do your own thing. That's what the tree represented. And some of you remember Brother Costa teaching that the deeper level of this, it's more than just the power of choice. Because the tree in the garden equals free will or choice. The ability to choose to believe and obey God or not. And so all of us have a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in our life. That is, it's not one thing, it can be many things, but it's a decision every day. When I wake up, am I going to live for God today or not? Am I going to walk in light or am I going to walk in darkness? Am I going to do God's thing or am I going to do my own thing? Right, right, right? Come on, guys, you with me now? We have a choice. We have the freedom and the ability to choose. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. God was not looking for another angel. He was not looking for an automatron who would worship Him without thinking. He was looking for someone who had an option to either walk away or walk toward. Who had an option to embrace or to turn His back on God. Because only by the power of choice could something else spring forth. And that is love. You can't have love until you have choice. Anybody ever heard of those nations and countries and civilizations where they arrange marriages? Can somebody say thank you, Lord, for not being born and raised where your dad got to choose who you were going to marry? Because knowing my dad, it would have been a financial choice. But guess who got to choose who I was going to marry? It was me. And so because of that, guess what was the number one factor in our marriage? Love. Because out of everybody that I could have chosen, out of everybody that I could have pursued, I looked at all of them. I spent some time with different ones. Got to be careful here with my verbiage. She watched me looking, checking the flock out. Can I tell a story? All right. I'll tell a little story. When I first went on a date with my wife, I had been in a relationship for three years, and it had just ended. Everybody thought that that other relationship was going to end up in marriage and so forth. It didn't happen. And uh, I had already recognized and noticed Tamara Keller, at meetings. I was introduced to her one time 
And I was smitten, but she had no time for the boy with funny hair and wingtip shoes. In fact, she told me later on our, our first date, she looked down in her mind. She said, those shoes got to go. <laughs> but uh, so, so here's what happened. I had not gone out with a girl other than this one relationship for over three years. And so I was going to the general conference where there were going to be plenty of uh, eligible young ladies. And I had arranged a date with someone before I even got there, and their name happened to be Tamara. But it wasn't this one. <laughs> and then I, I'm, I'm not going to go into the full story because it's kind of crazy. But, however, I went out with her on the first night of conference, and I fell on my face head over heels in love. And I went back to my hotel room, and I said, Dad, I think I found who I'm going to marry. And he's like, oh, you can't know that yet. I've heard that before. <laughs> but I already had a date arranged later with another Tamara soul. <laughs> Next night of conference, I'm out with this young lady. And we went back to uh, the large hotel lobby where everybody hangs out and talks. And I was sitting there talking to her. And I looked over, and there was Tamara number one <laughs> against the wall with her friends just looking at me as I tried to talk to this talk to this young lady and and I looked over her and, and I, she caught my eye and she said it's past your bedtime <laughs> so I, 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 I knew I was hooked and uh, so the point being I chose her and because I chose her it's because of love because I had an option and th without a tree in the garden that grew there, and without an opportunity to accept or ignore God's principles, then we would not have an opportunity to choose to serve God or not. And so it was through choice and through love. But, but, but still, why did God set them up for failure? I mean, it's a big deal when you consider the suffering that was brought by Adam's failure. Anybody ever know anybody that got sick? The origin of sickness goes back to this problem. Anybody seen anybody that's struggling with disease and pain? Anybody ever been hit by crime? These kinds of things are a product of the mess that Adam got us into. For every person who has struggled with drug addiction, for every person who has been hit with divorce, whether they're going through it or as a child they're experiencing Every person that's been hurt by sin, raised fatherless. Every person that's suffered abuse. Every person that's been molested. Every person that's been r raped. Every person that's experienced the pain of having a family member taken by murder. Every person that's seen firsthand the pain of genocide that still happens in the world today. Has seen the pain of Holocaust. The question is why? Why God? Why did you allow this into the world? You, you had the power right there. You could have intervened. You could have taken that snake and strung him up from a tree. You could have taken that tree out of the garden. And in and, and, and my logic, in my thinking, is I'm, I'm thinking from the perspective of what would I do? I mean, if I was God's counselor, what would I do? If I'm going to be God's counselor, I'm like, God, first of all, you've got to get rid of that tree. I know it's pretty. I know the fruit looks good. But you need to get rid of the tree. And God, if you've got the power 
somehow bar that serpent from the garden and let these people live for thousands of years in peace and enjoy your relationship with them. I remember one time someone told me of a writing assignment I shared with some of you before, and their assignment was, if you could go back to any point in history and take one modern invention, anything, anytime, and you think it would make the biggest impact on the world, somebody would say, well, I'll take an, uh, an, uh, an Apple iPhone back to the time of the American Revolution and hand it to George Washington and say, check out what man has come up with. Or, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take an automobile and I'm going to take it back to uh, the, uh, uh, the time of Alexander the Great and give him like a tank. And, and that's going to make the biggest difference in the world. And, well, one person that was telling me about this assignment, they said, you know, I'm going to go back a little further than that. I'm going to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the modern invention I'm going to take with me is a chainsaw. <laughs> and I'm going to go after that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to cut it down, I'm going to drag it off, and I think that would make the biggest impact. So the question is, would we today be better off if there had never been a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Would we be better off today? And if so, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you put the tree there? Why did you allow man to fail? Why did you allow the serpent to beguile these unequipped, innocent people? And this is a, a deep question because you'll never understand the origin of sin in the context of a loving and a sovereign God. It won't make sense until you can fully appreciate the blessing and the value of redemption. Because I've heard it said before that what Adam got us into... Jesus got us out of. And there's truth in that, isn't there? Everything that Adam messed up, Jesus fixed for us. But it doesn't tell the whole truth. Because the beauty and the blessing of redemption is this. Not only did Jesus get us out of what Adam got us into, but Jesus put us in a position that's better than what Adam was in. Come on, somebody. And until you understand that God had a purpose and a plan and a journey for all of this, and redeemed mankind is God's prized possession. It's His piece of pottery with His own blood in it. It is His greatest created thing until we understand that a lot of questions about life and a lot of questions about why I had to go through what I go went through and why I had to experience the pain that I experienced. Why, God, did you let this happen? It infuriates me when I hear of people who experience molestation, abuse as a child. And I'm like, God, why didn't you step in and stop it? You had the power to. Why couldn't you do it? These are the kinds of questions that nag and stir in the hearts of those particularly that have been hurt and wounded in a way that they can't seem to get repaired or fixed no matter how much counseling and how many hours they spend and money they spend trying to fix what was destroyed or stolen or taken from them. This is a deep question. Let's go there right now. Satan is not the author of the sins of the flesh. The Bible lets us know that our sin comes from our humanity, our human heart. But the sphere of Satan's operation is in the spiritual or the religious realm. Let me tell you what Satan's number one job is. Satan's goal and objective is to get between your spirit and God. 
to sever the connection between your spirit and God. This is what uh, the enemy was doing with uh, Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter number 3. And uh, his work consists of substituting his lies in the place of God's divine truth. And you can read through Genesis 3 and you notice exactly how the enemy does it. Uh, we, We see the subtle devices of Satan. We see the powerless of humanity to overcome Satan's advances without the grace of God. We see the spiritual effects of sin. The fact that when man became a sinner, rather than coming to God and saying, God, fix it for me, he fled from the presence of God. This is still the spiritual product of sin. We see the attitude of God toward the guilty sinner. And we also see the human tendency to cover our moral shame by devices that we create uh, and things of our own handiwork rather than saying, God, I need you to fix it. Uh, Let me tell you, when Adam and Eve made the fig leaves and sewed them together to cover their shame, it was works of the flesh in an effort to cover up their sin. And I want to tell you right now that there's a lot of people that do a lot of things under their own power to try to take care of the guilt and the shame of sin. Well, I'll just be nicer. I'll go to church more. I'll shout louder. I'll do this and that. Let me tell you what it is. It's fig leaves. Because the only thing that can cover you, the only thing that can deal with your sin is somebody Something has to die. Blood has to be shed. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3. Satan beguiled Eve by saying, Yea, hath God said. He was throwing doubt on God's divine word. And every effort is being made today in 2011 to deny the authority of scriptures. The same thing hath God said. Come on now. Every time Hollywood puts out another movie and desensitizes this world to the sin of homosexuality, you know what it is? It's another half God said. Come on, someone. Do you understand? Every time they put into our school system more things to challenge the Word of God, it's still the same old effort to bring into question the Word of God and say, hath God said from the very beginning, the enemy of our soul has been at work to undermine what God's Word says, hath God said. And next of all, Satan substituted his own word for God's Word. He said, ye shall not surely die. God's Word says ye shall die. My word is, ye shall not surely die. And I want you to notice, isn't it sad that these people refused to believe God's Word but accepted Satan's lies? That's human nature. We tend to gravitate to that which is negative and accept that which is negative rather than that which is divinely inspired the Word of God. That's the struggle with this flesh. Amen? That's why all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth good. There is none that's righteous. No, not one. Amen? Romans chapter 6 declares the plight that we face in Romans chapter 7. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Because the good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. I find then that there is a law with me. Sin is present with me. There's a law working in my members. Do I have any real people in the house today that can say, I know what's right, but I do what's wrong. I know what God's commandments are, but I end up listening to the lies of the enemy. This is the plight of humanity, but this is the blessing and the beauty of redemption. Hallelujah. And finally, Satan called into question God's goodness. Not only did he question the word of God, half God said, replaced his own words. But finally, he he questioned God's goodness. In other words, he said, this tree will make you wise. Look, it's good. God's holding something good from you. 
<laughs> Anybody ever seen that one happen before? Yeah, yeah, I'll just be plain. Yeah, 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 I'll be plain. Well, the Bible says we should be married before we move in together. We know it's going to make a more healthy relationship if we get to know each other first. God's withholding something from us, something good. Come on, God's word is true, and God's not withholding something good from us. Do I have an amen? That's just one. We can go on and on and on and on about all the lies that the enemy tries to use to convince you that God's parameters are about keeping us from something good. I'm thankful for God's parameters. Amen. I'm thankful mom and dad wouldn't let me play in the street. I'm so glad mama smacked my hand when I reach out for the oven. But that smack hurt a whole lot less than burning the third degree burn on my hand. Amen. God's not withholding. Boy, can you imagine Satan coming in? Hey, little dude. What up, little dude? Did mom really say you couldn't touch that oven? Don't you know that if you touch that oven, it's going to feel good? Yeah. Mama just don't want you to feel that good feeling. Mama just wants to be your controller and your boss. Hey, man, that seems infantile, but that's the same thing that happens today. The enemy uses the same process and the same thing over and over and over again. And we're helpless as human beings to combat it without God's grace and without God's mercy. One little thing I saw that's really cool is Satan works from without to within. Reverse of how God works. God starts in the human heart, right? And then transforms the outside. It's an inside-out work of grace. Praise God. Amen. Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. But Satan starts on the outside. If you read that passage in, in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, it says, She looked at the fruit and saw that it was good for food. That's just bare ex external uh, motivation. I'm hungry. It looks good. And then pleasant to the eye. That's a little deeper. That's kind of an aesthetic thing. So we're getting deeper into emotion, appreciation, and so forth. Hunger, which are base motivations. Pleasant to the eye. More aesthetic, soulish emotion. And then desire to make one wise. That goes a little deeper. So Satan works from the outside in. But when God reaches... You know why that, that is? Because Satan doesn't have access to your spirit directly. He has to work from the outside in. Anybody ever noticed that before? You start stumbling with things of the flesh, and then you find yourself not wanting to pray. It's not that you wake up in the morning and you don't want to pray. The devil starts from the outside in. Amen? But thank God that he spoke directly to your spirit right in the midst of your sin. God didn't say clean up the outside and then we'll get to the inside. God said, I'm going to deal with your heart. I'm reaching for your heart. Amen. No man cometh to God save the Spirit. Draw him. Anybody thankful that one day when you were a mess, God started reaching for your heart? Ha! Anybody thankful that while you were still cheating and lying and messing around, God reached for you? Anybody thankful, amen, when your mind was a million miles away from God, that God started reaching for your heart? I'm thankful for God's mercy and God's redemption and God's grace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the sake of time, I, I must progress quickly. I want you to notice this, that 
God went looking for Adam. Adam didn't go looking for God. God went looking for Adam. And it wasn't when he said, where art thou, Adam? It wasn't like, like he was an oppressive school mom. Where are you, kid? It was out of love. He was reaching for him. He missed that relationship. And I want to tell you, God's approach to a sinner is this. He's looking for you. God's approach to that person who's turned their back on him and doing their own thing. God's calling. He's reaching. God's merciful. God is loving. Come on, somebody. Anybody thankful that God reached for you and God loved you? Come on. Hallelujah. When God called Abraham, Abraham wasn't circumcised yet. Abraham wasn't a one God, apostolic, tongue talking, holy, worldly, born again preacher, heaven bound believer in the liberating power of Jesus' name. Abraham was a pagan living in a pagan land, worshiping false gods. And God says, I'm reaching for you. I chose you. I'm picking you out. I'm drawing you. Come out from among them. Be ye separate. Come out of Ur and let me take you to a place of promise and blessing. Come on. When God called and started working on Moses, he wasn't perfect. He didn't have it together. He was a murderer, a fugitive, running away from the law. And God called him from a bush and said, I'll use you now. Anybody thankful that God took you when you were broken? God reached for you when you were a mess. Peter, James, and John didn't go hunt Jesus down. Jesus walking on the seashore and reaches out to them. Shows love to them. Stretches to them. Amen. Men that were fishermen and anything but Bible scholars. That's why he could say, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. It's a shepherd that seeks the sheep. The sheep don't go looking for the shepherd. The shepherd seeks the sheep. In Genesis 3.15, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Where are you? I want, I want you to notice just real quickly in Genesis 15, the curse. The curse. That God put on the earth, on the man. Come on, I'm okay. Close. Close. Marginal. And on the woman. This, this is the curse. But I want you to know specifically the curse on the woman. He said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent. This is of profound importance. The woman. Who is the woman? The woman is Israel. How do you know that, Pastor. Because the Bible said, your seed is going to crush the serpent's head. There's only one person that can crush the serpent's head. That's Jesus. Who's the woman that produced Jesus? Well, he said Mary. This prophecy wasn't about Mary. This prophecy was about the Hebrew nation, the Jews. The Bible said there's going to be enmity between Satan and the woman. That's why you can go through history time after time after time. And see men that become possessed by evil spirits and go after the Hebrew people. Whether it's Haman in the story of Esther, whether it's Adolf Hitler, whether it's Ahmadinejad, whoever these people are that have animosity toward the Hebrew people, guess what? It's the fight between the seed of the serpent, come on, and the seed of of the woman. I could spend a lot of time on that. That's a powerful, powerful thing. The Bible also said uh, that, uh, that there are two seeds. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Satan's seed and the woman's seed. An actual individual 
was the seed of a woman. It was Jesus Christ. But there's also going to be an individual that's going to be the seed of the serpent. It's called the Antichrist. An actual person that is the physical manifestation of Satan himself. The spirit already at loose and working in the world today. But the Bible said that her seed was going to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent's seed was going to bruise the heel of her seed. What, we know that part of it has happened because when Jesus died on the cross, it was Satan's seed destroying or bruising the heel. But the other part of the crushing of the head is not going to happen until we read in Revelations 20 verses 2 and 3 that Christ is going to return to the earth and Satan is going to be bound up for a thousand years and cast into the bottomless pit. Amen. God's given us these promises. Hallelujah. So God had said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And mercy's desire was to spare the sinner, but justice demanded death. And that's why God gave them animal skins. The significance is you can't get the skin off an animal without shedding the blood of the animal. And God did something right there. God did some powerful things. God, first of all, showed them the principle of substitutionary death, which was going to come when Jesus Christ died for your sins and for my sins. And God is the one that did all the work. They didn't have to go kill the animal themselves. God's the one that provided for them. And they were driven out of the garden, and sin separated them from God. Let me get to the point here. Oh, my Lord. Why did God let man fall? Why did God let sin enter into the world? And here's the amazing truth. Through God's plan of redemption, Jesus Christ not only reversed the effects of the fall, but He brought us into a better thing than what Adam had in the garden. Actually, those that have been redeemed by Jesus' blood, those that have been set free by the blood of the Lamb, have gained more through Jesus Christ than they lost through the failure of Adam. Before the fall, Adam dwelt in an earthly paradise. But when you are redeemed, the Bible says that we sit with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. Before the fall, man only possessed natural life with a fleshly body. But because of redemption, those that are in Christ are partakers of the divine nature. The Bible says we are partakers of the divine nature. Adam in the garden was innocent. Does anybody understand that innocent is not a positive state in terms of where Adam was? The dispensation of innocence actually means ignorance. They didn't know. They were in innocence, which is a negative condition. But believers in Jesus Christ, those that have been redeemed, are not innocent. They are righteous, which means they know the difference from right and wrong. And they know what it feels like to have made a mistake. And they know what it feels like to be separated from God. But now they have been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. Adam didn't know what he had. Adam was innocent. He was ignorant. But today when we stand up right before God, it's with knowledge of where we were and what we could have been and what we used to be. That's better. Come on, somebody. It's not just making up for what we lost, making up for lost time. Hallelujah. 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 It goes on and on and on and on and on. 
Adam was Lord of Eden, but we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. (laughs) Through grace, we are capable of a deeper joy than Adam could ever know. Come on. Through the grace that God has shown to us, we can sing the song of the redeemed. We can show gratitude for God's divine mercy and justice. Hallelujah. The song of the redeemed. The Bible says the angels want to look into what's happening. Because our worship's a little bit different than the angels. The angels wave things and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They talk about the nature of God. But guess what we do when we start dancing and running and shouting? We're talking about the works of the living God. You know why I can shout today? Because I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. And then a little light from heaven filled my soul. It bathed my heart in love and wrote my name above. Hallelujah. Just a little talk with Jesus made me whole. Hallelujah. There is a song of the redeemed. There is a joy in our heart. There is an explosion of love to God that could never be felt by a man named Adam that had never experienced a downtime. And there's some of you that are in the midst of a trial and going through a difficulty right now. And you've been saying, God, why? Doesn't make any sense. You could have taken that person out of the way. You could have never caused me to go through that. You could have put me in a position where I never was tempted by that. Why did you let that person come into my life and draw me away from this? Why did you let that happen, God? But God is saying, you know what? There's something coming that's better than what you would have been before any of the mess happened. If you believe and trust in God and say, I believe in the power and the blessing and the beauty of redemption. It's not just about taking me back to my first state, but it's about putting me somewhere that I never could have been without my mistake and my failure and my sin. The beauty of redemption. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Through the redeeming work of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have a portion that unfallen Adam could never have attained to. The Bible said it this way. Where sin abounded, it didn't say grace did abound. It said grace did much more abound. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Come on, somebody. Grace did much more abound. Rather than trying to figure out why you went through what you went through, somebody needs to give God thanks because you can't understand or deduce the level that you're at that you would never be at had you not gone through the trial, had you not gone through the journey, had you not faced the pain, had you not experienced the difficulty, had you not uh, felt the hurt of it, uh, you would not be where you are. Therefore, the nature of God. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. A lot of questions I have, I can't. You say, why did this happen? I don't know. I don't know why it happened, but God is good all the time. God is good all the time. See, you don't understand human nature if you think Joseph sat in that prison cell rejoicing. Saying, God's taking me somewhere. Hi-ya. God's taking me somewhere. Hi-ya. No, he's like, dude, how did this happen? I was dad's favorite, and all of a sudden my brothers, tur- my brothers turned on me. Oh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. People I love did me wrong. People supposed to be looking out for me and protecting me, sells me into slavery. I didn't do nothing. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm taking care of my master's house. That woman turns on me. Now I'm rotting away in a prison. I don't know if I'll ever get 
out of here. I thought God had promises. I thought God had provision. I thought God had blessing in my life. God, why did you allow my brothers to do that? Why did you let me get put in a pit? That's depressing and discouraging to be placed by your own brother. God, why did you allow me to be sold into slavery? And you could have put me in any house, but you have to put me in the house of that lying, conniving woman, Potiphar's wife, who's going to fall in lust with me and tell lies on me and get me put in prison. God, what are you thinking? Man, you don't know what you're doing. God, you have messed up plan A. Plan A was that God was going to bless me and all my brothers and sisters were going to bow down to me and I was going to be exalted in my father's house and now here I am. I'm never going to see my father again. I'm never going to see my brothers again. I'm going to rot away in a prison. God, I guess this is your plan B, but it don't make sense to me. I know you messed up on plan A. Something happened that was out of your control and now I'm in the midst of plan B. God, I don't understand it. I don't know why I'm going through this. Let me remind you again that what you think is plan B may be God's plan A because Joseph would have never ended up in the palace if he hadn't gone through the prison where sin abound grace did much more abound and God has a blessed plan for you God has, come on somebody, God has a blessed plan for your life God's working all things Well, Pastor, I can't see it. Go ahead if you want to. Waller in your doubt and self-pity. But there's some people in the house that say, I'm going through it right now. But God's got a plan. I'm going through it right now. But I'm trusting God. If God can take something evil and turn it into good. If God can take something that the devil meant to destroy me and turn it into something that God can use to finish His work in me. Come on, let's stand and praise the Lord together right now. That's the nature of God. If God told you everything before you started, you say, I don't want it. But God said, I got plans for you that are huge. Some of you don't believe that. Come on, let that, let that raw faith spring up in you. God's got plans for me that are huge. So you say, so God's bringing this pain into my life. God's bringing this. No, I didn't say that. Satan is the author. Satan is the author. But he's so dumb he hasn't learned yet. Man, he's been doing this for a thousand years and the same thing happens over and over and over again. What doesn't destroy you defines you.